0: You're listening to the Gospel Attic Podcast, where we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel, and we interview people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. On today's episode, it's my privilege to interview Marshall Brandon, the subject of a new book titled Someplace to Be a Somebody. The book takes the reader on a journey of God's grace and the transformation of Marshall Brandon from a modern-day Saul to an incredible example of the Apostle Paul. Marshall has been set free from childhood abuse, drugs, imprisonment, rage, hatred when he allows Jesus into his life. This is just an amazing story. Welcome to the show, Marshall.
1: Hey, so glad to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me today.
0: Oh, you're welcome. If you don't mind, um, just take a few minutes and introduce yourself to our audience who might be asking, who is Marshall Brandon?
1: Well, Marshall Brandon... Oh wow, that's a deep question because Marshall Brandon. Well, who I know I am now is I'm a child of the King. Marshall Brandon is a is a man uh, who lives in Akron, Ohio, who passes currently at a church called Grace Baptist in Kent, Ohio. Um, I am a husband, uh, a father of four children, fourteen grandchildren, uh, five great grandchildren. Uh, loving life, loving this season of life, loving my God more every day. That's a, a brief uh, bio of Marshall Brandon.
0: That's great. Why Why
1: was it important for you to have your story told? Well, I wanted to share, I like to say this, Greg, just as a correction. I, what it's called is God's story uh, in Marshall Brandon's life. And because I realized that uh, really the story isn't about me, but it's about our great God. It's uh, a God who created me in my mother's womb and uh, has a plan for my for my entire life, who has plans for me uh, for good and not for evil. So uh, coming to that understanding of who God is, I understand that every character in the Bible, the Bible really is about uh, his, his story and not uh, our own personal stories. And so knowing that what he has allowed me to experience in life is for his glory. So I, I want to tell about his story in my life so that others might see and experience this great God that I've had the privilege of of meeting and knowing who lives in me now and I want to share that uh, good news that God is able, no matter what you're going through, what you might be experiencing. But we have a God who keeps his promises, who said, Um, I will cause it to work together for good, no matter what you go through. It may not be good. It may not feel good. It may not look good. But our God has promised, I will, when you belong to me, I will cause that to work together for good, for my glory. I love that. I love that. Well, we don't have time in this
0: podcast to cover every thing that is in the book and it's written really well it makes you just feel like your life is in 3d and boy you have experienced a lot in your life and so but let's let's just kind of um uh, walk through your life a little bit so tell us what what it was like uh your childhood describe your childhood to our audience
1: i had uh, a very unhappy childhood i my father was um, an alcoholic. My mom was a rageaholic. Uh, I'm one of um, six children. I am next to the youngest one, so there was a lot of dysfunction in my family. And uh, I was trying to figure all that out. Obviously, as a child, you you're learning, and what are you learning, and what are you you know, what does your environment give to you to learn from and take from? Unfortunately, much, much of mine was was very negative. There were some good spots in there, and and, and now in hindsight, as especially as a, a born again believer, now to look back and see God in all of it. But it was it was difficult sometimes not feeling loved. Um, does anybody love me? And not knowing who you are. Um, am I significant? Do I have value? Do I have worth? So I was trying to figure all that out as I was experiencing abuse of of beatings and, and uh, physical abuse and uh, certainly verbal abuse. And uh, just seeing all of that was, you know, shaping me and making me a very angry uh, young man, a very much an introvert uh, at the time. But at uh, the same time, that anger made me a very dangerous man. And uh, that's what I began to develop in, into as, as, as um, in my journey as, as, a, as a man young man in particular now one
0: of the chapters in your book is called the wrath of ruthie and uh, ruthie is your mom right Yes, yeah, yeah and uh, there's several stories in there but um maybe can you think of just one that that you would share that um just talked about like um you know that what it was like for you as a as a child that when when you experienced
1: uh her wrath yeah, my mother was, uh, I like to say, was someone uh, when she spoke because of her intimidation, because of her rage and the beatings you experienced from Ruthie, you knew she was no one to play with. So in some ways, she was keeping some kind of order in our family because, again, I had older brothers, uh, five boys and one girl uh, with the father was pretty much absent because of his uh, alcoholism. So Ruthie uh, was the enforcer, and uh, she would beat you in in ways that where her rage came out, that was almost incomprehensible. I would look at myself sometimes after a beating. She would beat us with with a thing called an extension. Well, it's, it's an extension cord. She'd fold that extension cord, double it up, and just beat you with that thing. You'd have welt marks, you know, and she'd hit you anywhere she could hit you across your face and the back, and, you know, you'd be bleeding sometimes. And, you know, experiencing that, I was going, man, does it, does it, you know, that's my mother. Does anybody love me? You know, but on the other side, the flip side of that, when she wasn't raging, uh, she had a side to her that was extremely caring and loving. And uh, so this dysfunction, this, this sin in her life uh, was <laughs> was was very difficult to deal with yeah well and
0: early on you started to experience i know one of the themes that kind of runs throughout your uh this book is just how you handle racism and uh how you've encountered it um from a from a young uh, as a young child as a young man um as a as a you know young adult um is there anything you want, anything you want to share about that? Like, I know one of the chapters is called visiting the roots of racism. Um, any, any, any memories stand out to you in how that first
1: uh, kind of showed up in your life? Yeah, let me, thanks, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, as I think about um, some of that, uh, you know, just a little history. My, uh, my grandfather was uh, actually a slave name is Joe Brandon, he was, born in 1859 that's my grandfather so my father was next you know i'm two generations so you look at that away from slavery so uh, a lot of that carryover from that was very present um in our family so when we moved from alabama you know with the great part of the great migration i know that it was now that but to youngstown ohio to steel mill my father was a was a sharecropper which Isn't much more than um, an indentured uh, uh, servant, if you will. Didn't make much money. Was uneducated. um, Went, I think, maybe to the sixth grade. Was, you know, um, was it was very difficult life for him. But anyhow, he he moved us to Youngstown, Ohio, and so more. A lot of our family was still, especially my his his siblings, uh, my mom's, uh, my grandparents were still alive, or at least on her side, both were still alive, just his mama. So I say that to say we would take frequent trips from Ohio uh, down into Alabama. Every summer we went, probably up until I was age 13 or 14. Every summer we'd go stay, you know, maybe a month and visit with the relative. Well, along the way, this is in the 50s. So America was where it was at that particular time. And uh, a very segregated uh, country, racist country, big. uh, full of bigotry and those kinds of things. And so you try to navigate that as as a minority, as a black man, young black man, and and just seeing the differences when we would ride from Youngstown to Cincinnati, uh, kind of what they considered the Mason-Dixie line. And that's where you would enter into the South. So we would uh, get off a Greyhound bus and back then they had a bus line called Trailways, which went further into the South. And you begin to see the difference and we'd have to get off the front of the bus and go to the back of the bus. And when they stopped at the bus station, the, everything was separate, it was segregated. Colored bathrooms, colored water fountains, um, no place to eat. They didn't, we couldn't eat in the bus station. So my mother would have to pack a lunch for us so we could eat. So seeing those kind of things, beginning to obviously uh, give you some perspective on maybe where we were living in at that particular time. Um, and going further in the South, uh, you know, getting instruction from my mom, what I could do, uh, what I couldn't say, uh, stories I could go in and couldn't go in uh, just to protect uh, me from, you know, crossing the line, perhaps that uh, could, be, could be deadly at the, at, the, at, the, at the worst. And so we did that. And so I'm seeing this and I'm seeing the difference, if you will, uh, from the south uh, to the north, where I was starting to go to school and do some of those kind of things. And, and the impact of that made me, again, it furthered my anger uh, just because as Black people many times in America, just because of our history of slavery, uh, we weren't even considered human. We just wanted somebody to say, man, I'm, I have work. You knew that within yourself. But for somebody to look at you and, and, and just disregard your significance as a human being it was very hard, very difficult. And uh, so you wanted to push back on that and go, you know, I have value, I am somebody, but who am I? You know, and, and that search for significance, who am I? You know, Oh, did we do anything? History was was changed and not written by us. And we were written out of history and I'm sitting in school at times going, you know, did we do anything to black people by we, I mean, did black people do anything, you know, that matter? You know, the only couple I remember when I was going through School was George Washington Carver and Booker G. Washington. That was it. And Columbus discovered it, man. I mean, it was—we didn't do any. So we felt—I felt—man, we, we, you know, we didn't have very much worse to yourself. You know, we didn't do anything. And then things began to change uh, when I was joined the service. At least I began to get a different perspective on. On America. It was the 60s then at that time. and Things were beginning to change in our country in terms of uh, marching. Uh, Dr. King started in the 50s but doing these civil rights marches, the era, civil civil rights era and so marching and black people say hey we are somebody um, you know and James Brown singing songs say it loud I'm black and I'm proud. begin to take pride in ourselves. Hey my hair is good. My kinky hair is it's beautiful. It's not, I don't need to I don't need to be anybody else. I mean, it's who God has made me. So we begin to move into some of those things and getting them a, a black pride, pride, so to speak. And uh, I can remember um, just my political awareness changing as a result of that and beginning to read about uh, black people who had accomplished some great things, but were written out of the history books as we knew them. And so all of that was part of the journey of growing into Uh, and dealing with uh, racism and bigotry and hatred just because of the color of your skin and uh so those are some of the things i I was dealing with
0: yeah so you so you had a kind of a rough home uh that you were you were uh, being raised in um i have no doubt that your parents loved you um but they just you know uh but sometimes it's uh in light of some of the things you just mentioned the history um you know, there's a reason why people act the way they, they do, you know, but tell us more about like what you were like as a teenager, like, uh, cause I know that, um, you know, we're building up to the real life changing event that happened in your life, which is when God really got a hold of your life. And, um, so, um, but what, what was going on as a teenager, as you were trying to find that significance, uh, you
1: know, uh. Yeah, to tell us tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, very interesting. Yeah, because of all this background, these beatings and bullying by my bigger older brothers and all of that, I had to learn to fight. I had to be learn to be a survivor. How am I gonna get through this? You know, how am I so this anger um, was intrinsic. I had become so angry inside, and it taught me how to fight. And I learned how to fight, Greg. I was I could fight. That's one thing I could do. So in in a blue collar town, a lot of times you got your significance in the streets but how good could you fight? That guy can fight, and uh, so people respected you uh, because of that um, that aspect of your life. So I started fighting and, and uh, was very good at fighting and very angry. That's what came out. That helped. That fueled my my, uh, my my desire to fight. And when I fought someone. And uh, so as a result of that, I got a lot of street cred. So as a teenager, so I began to do that. And, and probably by the time I was 13, I was leading, I had a gang. I got involved in a gang and became the leader of that gang, uh, a gang called A New Breed. And um, as a result of that, uh, we you know, did a lot of things, fighting and territorial things and all those kinds of things. But I knew somewhere, Greg, inside of me that it was, it was more to life than that. I'm going, this got to be, I'm searching for the, what do I find? It with my fist? Where, I, you know, I didn't know my parents were uneducated. Like you said, they didn't know what they didn't know. You know, they knew what they knew. They didn't know any different. So no direction. Hey, finish school. Start. It was no course of action. Take the next step. Maybe you'll go to college. You know, here's hope. There's, you know, if you pursue this track, so to speak, you're, you can change your life. So I didn't have any of that. I'm going to be doomed to the uh, Youngstown, Ohio, steel mills of Ohio, uh, the repetition, and I, in my heart, I wanted more. I knew somewhere there was more to life than this, and where, where, how do I find that? So, as a teenager, again, very angry, uh, going into my adulthood, uh, still maintaining that anger toward others, and in particular toward white folks. Mm.
0: Yeah, I want to. I want to. I want to get to that. Um. You know. Uh you know, you and I know each other, but I, I, I know you on, uh, as, as a brother in Christ, I didn't know that, I didn't know what you were like before then. And it's really hard for me to, to imagine what you were like, um, what your life was like. And, and that, like that anger you talked about and that, that hatred you had at one point towards white people. And, um, so I want to, I want to talk to that. So, uh, then you end up in Vietnam and it, the book makes it sound like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you wanted to go to Vietnam.
1: That's true, yeah, I was not a drafted. So my childhood, some of the people I looked at for heroes because I'm always looking, well, who are the heroes? And so there wasn't a lot of black ones, right? So some of the white ones became people like Audie Murphy. If you're, they were army, we played army and cowboys and Indians. Those are the kind of games we played when I was a kid, okay? so. Uh, Man, I wanted to fight. I wanted to be, (laughs) I could fight physically, but then I wanted to fight as a soldier. I wanted to be, you know, much as I knew about my country, as bad as it was, I wanted to represent my country. I wanted to to be a soldier, you know, and all that that meant. So um, therein, I joined the Army, and um, I joined at 17. My parents gave me permission because I wasn't old enough to go uh, until you were 18 on your own. So they they signed papers agreed so I could go at 17. And but as soon as I turned 18, by the time I turned 18, 55 days after I turned 18, um, I got orders to go to Vietnam and uh, did the training. The military was good for me. It showed me uh, discipline. It showed me respect for authorities. It began to teach me some things that I really enjoyed learning. Even though it was hard to learn, appreciate it, let me put it that way. And begin to give me some direction. And uh, so here I am uh, at 18, uh, so young. I thought I was old. When you're 18, sometimes you think, you know, you think you know a lot, but you, you realize you don't know. After a while, you know very little. But anyhow, I go to Vietnam. And so this war has a way of opening, maturing you in many ways. Your eyes are open. Uh, I'm stepping into a, the middle of a jungle. 1966 um the smells are overwhelming bombs are going off around you it is like what where what have i got myself into there though doing that tour um i've seen a lot of horrific things and one of the things that again this is the 60s so things are changing they're marching and all of that's going on in our country so at the same time there some people are hating vietnam war protesting against it so there's a lot of uh, tension going on in our country. And as a result of that though, I begin to read and, and see uh, propaganda from a propagandist named Hanoi Hannah. She would drop leaflets that would say things like, go home black like, man, your war is in America, you know? And uh, so it made you think like, that's right. There are places I can go home and not go into. Uh, there's still segregation was still uh, very prevalent. So that fueled my anger even more. And as a result of that, I got angrier and began to say, you know, I know power is never uh, conceded, so we're going to have to take it. So I began to prepare myself to go to war and to kill some folks when I came back home.
0: Wow. Um, I remember in, reading in the book about your experience when you got on that plane, that long plane ride overseas. And how you know everyone's bags are are piled in the like you know you can see them see them piled up in the plane and and it was so loud you could hardly talk to the person next to you and and you were looking around to see if there were any other black people on the plane with you and I I, I imagine you were one of the, one
1: of the few is that correct or that's correct yeah it, was, it wasn't very many of us in fact I'm trying to remember now maybe three or four at the time and on my particular, you know, people went over as units, but I was, uh, you know, my unit went over ahead of me. So I went over pretty much as an independent and got assigned to a unit once I was there, but yeah, it was, uh, we were a minority for sure. And I was one of them.
0: So what happens after you get back from Vietnam? What, what, what did you do? What, what was your frame of mind? You kind of mentioned it just
1: right there, but uh, what happened in your life then? I'm preparing for war. So I begin to do everything I could. I begin to gather weapons, dynamite, grenades, stealing it, hiding it, preparing to go to war. Um, so I have this stockpile of, but when I come back and begin to try to organize uh, some people to fight with me, <laughs> they weren't in the same place thing God, politically or in the same mindset. And they was going this guy this brother's been to Vietnam and he's a little cray cray. He's crazy. He's come back. He's crazy talking the way he's talking. And and probably was I probably was at it, that it, point. I didn't see myself with that. But they, I'm glad that people were able to recognize that. So anyhow, something which dramatically changed me, changed all that was I started to use heroin um heroin is is a drug that for um when you're high on it everything all your problems go away it's a a false peace that that represents something that only god ultimately can god can give you but for that moment you know as an unbeliever it gave me peace for 10 hours eight hours and then you know then back to it again so this addiction i got addicted and it changed my whole life it became lord of my life not revolution not killing folks it was like i'm chasing this drug i was an addict and, and then it, it was on the throne of my life it drove what everything i did from sunup to sundown as a result of that using that i couldn't maintain a job i had a job i couldn't stay at work so i began to steal and do those kind of things and rob and ended up getting um, caught And sent to prison in 1970. uh, I was sent to to the Mansfield Reformatory. That's the place that, if you ever saw the movie Shawshank Redemption, that's where that movie was filmed. So here I am now, Vietnam veteran, uh, young man, uh, finding myself, everything I wanted to avoid, I find myself walking through uh, a prison, and in prison. For 10 to 25 years, I'm sentenced to, saying, oh, my God, what am I going to do here? How am I going to do this? How will I make it? Wow. 10 to 25 years was your sentence? That was my sentence.
0: Who? Obviously, you didn't. I
1: don't think you were in there that that long, were you? I did. I wasn't. They had, uh, Mansfield was for uh, what they called uh, rehabilitation. So you could go before parole board, and they could let you or give you early release if you uh, behaved yourself as an honor inmate, did what you were supposed to do. And so that became became my challenge while in prison. I said, I wanna do everything in here I can do to be released when I get a chance to go to the parole board to ask them if they would consider releasing me. So I joined every club and said, how can I make myself better in here? Uh, I finished school, I started college, I got a trade. uh, I got in every organization that I could get in, I got an AA. N-A-C-A. I even joined Triple-A. I thought that was for people that had a real bad problem. But <laughs> so I got in every one of those. It became an honor inmate in there and uh, ended up with an early release, one of the first guys in the state of Ohio to be released on a program in 1973 called the Furlough Program. And that's when I came to Akron, Ohio, to a place called the Denton House that was a Christian organization i wasn't a christian wasn't caring anything about christianity but god had a plan that's where we begin to see god working in the plan and he put me in the in in this this, um this halfway house and a man there began to witness to me and much as what he said it was his life i saw the peace that this man had in his life and it, it impacted me i never forgot his name is dave fair and dave said he asked me that question, Marshall. Do you know Jesus? And I went. I had to say, No, I don't. I don't know. But it it it, it was a seed that that stuck with me. And I want to just encourage listeners today. If you're if you're sharing your faith with, don't wait on it. Wait on God to do it. You. He's the only one who can. But don't be discouraged if you don't see results. Right. Three years later, it was three years later. I never forgot Dave. I never forgot that seed. And God used a number of different circumstances to bring me to Himself. But three years later, I gave my heart uh, to Jesus Christ.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I'm friends with the Fair family. They're great, great people, and that's a great uh, thought there about uh, witnessing. Is that you know we 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 scatter seed, and you just never know when when it's gonna start to take root and bear fruit. And I think I know what happened. Uh, I think this is is this the time when
1: your your wife came along? Yeah, now I come out on the spurough program and I start to go to college. I'm going to Akron University. and uh, so I'm up at Akron University, and that's when i I saw my beautiful bride walking on the campus, and uh, I begin to stalk I mean I begin to uh, uh, show up where classes were after I was introduced and, and through a number of different circumstances, uh, she she gave me a date and we began to date and um, we, we fell in love. This was 1973, um, 1974, we, we, uh, we got married as per hand in marriage, a number of different times. She finally said yes, And uh, but I had a double life because I had started back to using drugs again, secretly. Yeah. And so here I am an addict again but I'm living in both worlds, and that's what addicts do. Sometimes they live in both worlds. The secret world is low down, it's dirty, it's dark. And Then the other side, where people are unaware of your addiction, you're trying to live this out. So that began to happen with my beautiful wife, and um,
0: and she called she you out. She, she called you out several times. Uh, she saw that other side of you, and it sounds like it, it was rough on your marriage. Like you, you had a rough
1: early marriage. Oh, it was very rough. It was because I really didn't know who I I was. You know, I'm a lost man. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to do life. I didn't have role models per se that were in my life. And so I don't know how to do life. So I'm doing what I like my parents. I'm, I'm perpetuating some dysfunctional things, some unhealthy things. And that's because that's all I knew. And so my marriage was very hard. My wife, Uh, I think we were married for two years and she has seen enough. She says, you know, I can't see you kill you. I love you too much. I remember her telling me that watch you destroy yourself. I won't be a part of that. So I'm going to leave. And I kept hearing her say, I'm going to (laughs) leave. And I came home one day and that's exactly what she, she asked me to leave. I said, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And so she went out and said, all right, then I have to do the next thing. And um, packed up and left me, uh, which was a turning point. One of the best things she ever did was to leave me. Because <clears throat> if she doesn't allow me to, to say that, I would have abused her. I would have kept, I would have used her. And so, one of the best things she did was to be healthy, was say, let me get out of this. I need to step out of this. And that, that gave me an awakening like, oh man, this person that I had that was significant in my life, now I have nobody but street folks. And street folks care nothing about you. I mean, it's low down and dirty uh, Mm -hmm. in the street. Don't anybody tell you any different. And uh, every man for himself and God for us all. But it's it's, so I got to experience that without any accountability. So I did everything I was big enough and bad enough to do. And uh, it brought me to an end. It brought me to the end of myself. I found that there was no happiness in those things. Everything I thought would bring me happiness, Ended up, it didn't. It did temporarily. Now, don't get me wrong. The world has something to offer, but it's only temporal. And then you have to go back and get some more. And so that's what I began to discover. Now, one night, I was on my knees crying out. I said, God, I don't know if you, who you are, who you are. I've heard a lot of people try to recruit me, Muslims and Buddhists. I said, I don't know if you're up there. All right, Who are you? Will you make yourself real to me? Please show me who you are. And he did. Ultimately, as we go on with the story, he made himself real to me and showed me who he was in the person of Jesus Christ.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.